from PRX. Studio 360. This is Kurt Anderson. I'm here on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Looking at the Lincoln Memorial now from straight on, and what I'm looking at is the back of the $5 bill. In fact, most of us probably have a portrait of the Lincoln Memorial in our pockets right now. And if you don't have a five, look at a penny. It's, it's there, too. We may not think about the Lincoln Memorial very often, but it's with us, each of us, in so many ways all the time. In this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. As he sits there on his chair looking down, you're drawn in to the spirit of a very great man. The glowy light and the marble. And and, and even though it's marble, the guy seems to have a life force within him. I was here in 1945 and I got up there and touched his hands. Yeah. Just like if he was alive, you know. And then, of course, the words chiseled on the wall like a tombstone slash prayer. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought At this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office. Not knowing what the future would hold, I would head on over to the Lincoln Memorial and just uh, sit on the steps at the top and, and just be quiet. It moves my mind to an attempt to embrace the enormity. I think it's the most sacred, secular spot in in Washington, D.C. It just seems almost beyond imagination how a persona could be so big and, and the whole place seems so big. It's so much bigger than what I can see. I'm Kurt Anderson, and today in Studio 360, how the Lincoln Memorial came to be and became an American icon. It's a monument to a man who was maybe the most divisive and the most revered leader this nation has ever had. And it looks pretty good on a stamp or a postcard or a $5 bill. I just finished college, and I was going to be an intern in in D.C., and I took the train from Montana, and uh, I'd never been east of the Mississippi, and you know, I think I knew two people in that town at that point. And it was like, oh, him I know. <laughs> kind of like seeing like a friendly, familiar face. That is the friendly, familiar voice of Sarah Vowell, the public radio commentator and serious American history buff. She wrote a book about presidents killed in office. It's called Assassination Vacation, which is a pretty good indication of how ironic Vowell tends to be. But I wondered, was your irony defeated by this gigantic memorial? Well, I mean, yeah, it does defeat irony momentarily. Um, I go there every time I'm in D.C. just as a, you know, it is a, like, pilgrimage place for me. And I remember once, uh, and I'm always roping my friends into going, and I took my friend Dave there, and he looked around, he's like, it's just so suspicious. I was like, what is, like, all these people? And it was true there. It's just, like, this very, like, almost... uh, suspiciously rainbow-colored assortment of people. And, you know, once I actually saw, standing there reading the Gettysburg Address, a guy in a cowboy hat reading it next to a Hasidic Jew. 
that kind of unity, the, the recognition of a common ground is one of the ideals the Lincoln Memorial has come to represent in the United States. But in fact, there was contentious debate over whether or not it would even be built, decades worth of contention. We take it so for granted, it seems so inevitable, like, of course it would be there. No, there was a fight about where it would be. Of course it would look like that. No, there was a huge fight about that. There was very little enthusiasm, I would say, for the Lincoln Memorial in, in, in southern quarters. He, he was, in other words, he was a divisive figure. Christopher Thomas is an historian, the author of a book called The Lincoln Memorial and American Life. He says that in the years following the Civil War, people tried to build a memorial to Lincoln. The first attempt, right after his death in 1865, envisioned an 80-foot-tall bronze and granite sculpture. It was gigantic. It was, it was towering. And it sort of resembled a great big wedding cake. It was a stone pedestal rising in tiers with, at various levels, a total of 36 figures of politicians, abolitionists, and others associated with the Union cause, shown in tiers rising up the pedestal with allegorical figures representing Lincoln's virtues near the top, and on the very summit, a seated figure of Lincoln shown with his pen signing the Emancipation Proclamation. In other words, a huge, over-the-top version of the kind of old-fashioned monument that's now completely ignored in cities across America. The effort to build that one fizzled by the 1880s. It never collected enough money. And it wasn't until his memory could be, so to speak, resuscitated for the cause of national unity that he could be commemorated on large scale in the Capitol. In 1900, the city of Washington, D.C. still wasn't finished. The mall was just a mess of railroad tracks. Around that time, American politicians were rediscovering Pierre L'Enfant, the French immigrant and army engineer who drew up plans for Washington, D.C. originally, after the Revolution. L'Enfant had a very French revolutionary view that, in a democracy, patriotism should replace organized religion. And D.C. would be a kind of secular mecca to which Americans would make a pilgrimage at least once in their lives. By the early 1900s, city leaders decided that a memorial to Lincoln would be the perfect centerpiece for their new mall. Until then, it really hadn't been possible to reach any agreement on uh, a memorial to Lincoln in the Capitol. But the proposal is sort of flown in under the radar by treating the Lincoln Memorial as a memorial to the Union. And Lincoln is sort of flown into the scheme as, as the reuniter of America rather than as the emancipator of the slaves. A uniter. That was something everybody could get behind. That's why there aren't any references to race or freed slaves in the memorial we see today. We read Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and Second Inaugural Address in the memorial, not the Emancipation Proclamation. But That big omission isn't what got criticized at the time. It was architect Henry Bacon's design for the building. If you really think about the architecture of it, it's 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 ridiculous. And 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 the Chicago chapter of the American Institute of Architects just erupted when they saw that Greco-Roman design because it seemed so silly to them that their prairie sun be memorialized with this you know weird Greek temple. In fact, no less than Frank Lloyd Wright went on record at the time, calling it one of the most ridiculous, most asinine miscarriages of 
building material that ever happened. Wright hated the idea of new buildings literally imitating ancient architecture. What did a Greek temple have to do with Abe Lincoln, the rail splitter? Wright wrote of Lincoln, he is the Greek antithesis. Nothing is Greek about his life or work or thought. The classicist architect Alan Greenberg has a quibble here with Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, it's actually not at all like a Greek temple. A Greek temple has a pediment. The pediment, that's the low-pitched triangular gable you see on the front of some classical roofs. The Lincoln Memorial has a flat roof that runs straight across. In fact, it's much more Mayan. You have this quite steep, unbroken flight of stairs. It's a very long staircase. It's not Greek to architect and critic Vitol Rybczynski either. Greek temples had three steps, and that was it. Uh, the other thing which he does is that there isn't really a door into the interior. It's just a, the wall just opens up. You just sort of drift in. And I think that connection of inside and outside also makes it less like a sanctuary. And it, it's always there. It's, a, it's a, truly a public open place. I'm standing at the bottom of the marble steps. I can see Lincoln inside. But it really looks huge from here, from this perspective. And according to my tourist brochure here, we are 39 feet above the Potomac and surrounded by 39 columns as well. Each of the columns around the building are dedicated to one of the states of the Union at the time of the Civil War. It's so inscribed above the column. And the ancient Greeks believed that columns were people. So each of those columns actually is a citizen of every state holding up this building. You can see the building quickly, but you must look at the sculpture slowly. But I'm, I'm biased, of course. Leonda Fink is a sculptor herself, and she is a great admirer of Daniel Chester French, the artist who created this sculpture of Lincoln in there. We have this tremendous sculpture with a great deal of power and strength. He's huge, Lincoln, this marble Lincoln. If, if he could stand up, he'd be 28 feet tall. It sort of reminds me, looking at him up there, of the sculptures of the pharaohs in Egypt or of Lenin or Stalin in the old Soviet Union. Only, it's not heroic in the way that those usually are. There is the very vulnerable human sitting there, just like we are, one of the people. And so you have the extreme of power and gentleness. Very benign, very fatherly in, in, in a way. Yeah, the wise, sad statesman. I would think thoughtful. He needed to sit down and think about things. Lincoln is sitting, which is unusual in terms of depictions of political figures. Most sculptures of political leaders are shown in some very heroic pose, standing or on horseback, sword in hand, chin up. It is not a figure in a uniform, nor with trappings, uh, outward trappings to say, this is great, strong America. He's very much a man of the people. And the fact that he's sitting means you can look at the whole figure at once. You can't see the feeling of it with one long look. And the head, of course, is further away, and you come forward and see what the hands are doing. I must admit that for a while, I didn't realize that one hand was clenched and one was open. If you look at Lincoln's hands, 
they're doing separate things. The one on the left, his right, is kind of draped casually over the arm of his chair, but his left hand is clenched in a fist. There's also a myth or, or rumor that the sculptor intended the hands to be the sign language for A and L, like his initials. And there's no truth to it. It's bogus. Historian Michael Richman wrote a biography of Daniel Chester French. If you know how the letter A in sign is given, it's with the fist upraised. To show the symbol for the letter L, the hand is extended and the thumb is upright as are the fingers. But in the statue, the hands are draped over the edge of the chair. And I've always felt that there is, if you will, the tense, determined of the left and the relaxed and compassionate of the right. And so what French is able to do in that seated figure is something which we as a normal human being cannot do. You cannot be simultaneously both tense and relaxed. Of course, Daniel Chester French's greatest challenge as a sculptor was that face. Lincoln is not the most classically beautiful face. I mean, he has a very bizarre face. And, you know, he was held in such esteem and French wants to capture this esteem but Lincoln is such a screwy looking guy and and it takes French years just kind of trying to figure out how to sculpt him and especially how to represent his face and convey some kind of sense of you know philosophical grandeur and he spends years just reading about him and thinking about him and looking at pictures and drawings and 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 he you know he finally figures out how he wants to sculpt this thing. And and French, you know, goes down to D.C. after it's installed. And lo and behold, they put that reflecting pool in. And the reflecting pool, unfortunately for French, reflects. And it, it looks like they're holding a flashlight underneath Lincoln's face. And, and uh, he looks really startled. And, and, and it's really, really f- unintentionally funny. French spent years lobbying Congress to pay for electric fixtures along the top of the memorial to fix the lighting situation and to restore the look on Lincoln's face to the grave, brooding expression we all know. But the author Doris Kearns Goodwin thinks there's still something missing. He came to life when he spoke, when he told stories, when he laughed. Marble cannot capture that, although what happens in that memorial, which makes it so dazzling, is the combination of that gorgeous statue and the words on the wall around it. Off to the left of the statue, if you're facing it, is the Gettysburg Address, and over in the cove to the right of the statue is the second inaugural address. Lincoln gave that speech while the Civil War was still raging. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. He's saying to them, you and I, we are the same. You know, we both read the same Bible. We both pray to the same God. And and that's so rare in a public life that you can really look at the other side It was exactly the kind of rebuilding the Union message American leaders wanted the Lincoln Memorial to communicate in the early 1900s. But the unresolved issues of the Civil War just decades past had not gone away. America was sitting on a ticking time bomb and it was lying at the feet 
of the Lincoln Memorial. I have a dream today. The civil rights movement shakes up America. That's in just a minute. I'm Kurt Anderson, and you're listening to Studio 360's American Icons, the Lincoln Memorial. Studio 360. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And even though I'm listening, as you are too, of children on field trips and tourists trying to manage their own children, in my mind, I, I keep going back to a speech that I heard Martin Luther King deliver in 1963 when I was a little boy. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's a place where people go to assert their freedoms. That's why, in 1995, the organizers of the Million Man March picked the memorial as their destination. And it's not just racial issues. Pick your hot-button topic. Gay rights, anti-war, abortion. The Lincoln Memorial has seen them all. It has become America's soapbox. 30 years ago, Martin Luther King led one quarter of a million people to this very place. The memorial was finished in 1922, but that transformation into a place where history happens didn't really begin until 1939, when the great opera singer Marian Anderson performed there. I'm Dorothy Haidt. I'm the chair and president emerita of the National Council of Negro Women. Dorothy Haidt remembers when Marian Anderson had tried to sing at another venue in Washington. Constitution Hall, which was under the administration of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And she was denied that opportunity. Anderson was black. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was so upset about her racist exclusion that she offered Anderson the Lincoln Memorial for her concert instead. It was the first time that a First Lady had taken such a hand. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking to you from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the nation's capital, from which point the National Broadcasting Company brings you a song recital by the gifted Marian Anderson, considered by music critics throughout the world as possessing a most outstanding contralto voice. Marian Anderson is singing... On Easter Sunday, April 9th, 1939, a huge crowd gathered at the Lincoln Memorial, not just to hear Marian Anderson sing, but to take a stand against racial segregation in America. There was a crowd of between 75 and 100,000. The United States Park Police officially estimate the attendance at over 75,000. And the first words that came from her mouth were, My country, tis of thee. was suddenly a moment of a great spirit and a feeling that this injustice had been recognized and that Marin Anderson 
made us all proud to be Americans when she could sing. There's a famous photograph of Marian Anderson singing that day. Susan Laurie Parks, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, remembers the first time she saw the picture of Anderson in front of the memorial. It was this brave and brilliant woman singing at, um, well, I wouldn't say at his feet. That gives the wrong idea, but he's backing her up. He's got her back. And that was the first time I saw it and went, wow. The Marian Anderson concert was such a success that the burgeoning civil rights movement tried to stage more demonstrations at the memorial. In other words, they wanted to remind America that Lincoln was not just the savior of the Union, but the great emancipator. But some of the people who made the concert happen, like Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes, blocked the civil rights organizers from using it again. Icky said that a 1942 NAACP demonstration would, quote, dim the glory of Marian Anderson's concert. He seemed to feel that the civil rights movement was trying to force the country further than it was ready to go on civil rights. A generation later, black frustration with segregation and inequality was at its peak, and it was time for something huge. James Horton is a professor of African-American history at George Washington University. And you have to understand that in the early 1960s, we had just gone through the sit-ins in, uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. The uh, Montgomery bus boycott was not, not a decade old. And it was to the Lincoln Memorial that Martin Luther King Jr. went to make his great speech. He began with an echo of the words chiseled into the wall behind him. Five score years ago... A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. The uh, ceremony that was held at the Lincoln Memorial was in part an effort to try to get the federal government to listen to the message of the civil rights movement. And it didn't seem to be listening. And so hearing Martin Luther King speak those words to that tremendous crowd was really encouraging. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. I saw the possibility of America making good on the promise that it had made to itself and its people at its inception. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. It was a galvanizing moment for the civil rights movement and for America. 
it's for this historic scene, maybe as much as for Lincoln himself, that we consider the Lincoln Memorial a symbol for freedom and equality in America. My country tears of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. In fact, near the end of his speech, King echoed the words of Marian Anderson's performance. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and when this happens, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. I had thought that I had experienced it all when Marin Anderson sang, but I have to tell you, there is no way to describe what it meant to hear Dr. King deliver that memorable address. There was a spirit that lasted for a long while. I remember personally feeling that, you know, things are going to are going to change. I naively at that point thought, you know, by about 1970, certainly by the 1970s, it'll all be over. We will have achieved that thing that America said that it was setting out to achieve originally. If only. By the end of the 60s, America's urgent attentions had shifted. We were deeply tangled in Vietnam, and liberal demonstrators were flocking to the Lincoln Memorial once again, this time to show the government how they felt about that war. Bud Crow remembers it well. He was a member of Richard Nixon's White House staff. My job in the White House was to coordinate the government's response to major demonstrations and to set up the systems to protect the White House. It was the beginning of May 1970. Earlier in the week, the U.S. had invaded Cambodia, expanding the Vietnam War, and four student protesters had been shot and killed at Kent State University in Ohio. So I basically hadn't been sleeping for a couple of nights because we knew there was going to be a huge outpouring of uh, demonstrators coming to D.C. to protest the president's decision to invade Cambodia. We had just finished up uh, uh, circling the White House with buses. Uh, we had just moved in a uh, contingent of, uh, of soldiers. And I was in the Secret Service command post. And as I was uh, sitting there at uh, one of the consoles uh, around 4.30 in the morning, I heard over the speaker that Searchlight was on the lawn. Searchlight was the Secret Service uh, designator for the president. And uh, when I heard that, I immediately uh, punched in the telephone number for John Ehrlichman, who was the assistant to the president for domestic affairs at that time. And he said, we'll go over and uh, render assistance. So I rushed across West Executive Drive, just in time to see the president's limousine pull out of the Southwest Gate. I spoke to the Secret Service and he said, well, he's headed up to the Lincoln Memorial. And I uh, commandeered another vehicle and told my driver to uh, take me up to the Lincoln Memorial post haste. I got to the Lincoln Memorial probably about uh, maybe 10 minutes after the president uh, had arrived. And I walked up the the steps and saw him engaged in uh, a very close conversation with about, uh, I think at that point, probably 15 students who were dressed in uh, uh, really the, the, uh, the gear of the day, you know, a lot of old clothes and fatigues and peace symbols and headbands and uh, a lot with beards. And 
circling the president right up inside the first uh, colonnade at the top of the steps. When the media reported the encounter at the time, I remember that the takeaway was the fact that Nixon had talked about football with one of the students. It seemed a perfectly surreal detail that showed how clueless the president was. Oliver Stone even built a scene in his film Nixon around the incident. Where are you from? Syracuse. Oh, yeah, the uh, orange man. Uh, There's a football program. He did say to one student who said that that he was from Syracuse University, oh, they've got a good football team there. And that was probably about a a five-second comment uh, that was basically the story that president goes to the Lincoln Memorial, talks football to students, when in fact he had spent almost 45 minutes talking about very important substantive issues and almost deep spiritual ideas. And I was observing the students sort of looking at him like they were almost stunned, first of all, that he was there. And I'm not sure that they were tracking everything he was saying because they were there out of a great sense of outrage and and fury about the war. In fact, one of them told him, you know, that we're prepared to die uh, for for what we believe in. And the president's response was, well, he understood that and that how he felt the same way when he was a young person. But what he was trying to do was to build a world in which you will not have to die for what you believe in. And they were respectful to him. Uh, nobody yelled at him. There wasn't any kind of overt movement to, to harm him or anything like that, as it has been depicted in some of the films about this event since that time. Okay, Bob, we're just wrapping my friends and I. In fact, we agree on a lot of things, don't we? No, we don't. Oliver Stone may be a superb director and enjoyed his films, but... But he simply got it wrong. I think that President Nixon was was clearly trying to reach out and communicate in a way that would have a lasting impression for these students. The, the Lincoln Memorial was a very important place for him because of, uh, of what it meant spiritually. I think it's the most sacred secular spot in, in Washington, D.C., The end of his conversation with the students when the Secret Service finally persuaded him that he had to leave because a lot of people, the word was getting out that, you know, the president's at the Lincoln Memorial and he could see people beginning to come up the stairs. Uh, the sun was just gradually rising. It was a very pink effulgence sort of was flowing out from the east and, and coming over the Capitol and the Washington Monument. And it was it was just an extraordinary morning. For me, going there, I don't get the feeling like, wow, he freed the slaves. It doesn't even come up in my mind. What comes up in my mind is this religious feeling. Like when I go into a a beautiful cathedral, I don't stand there and look at the Christ on the cross and go, wow, he died for my sins. I go, whoa, it's so much bigger than what I can see. In a country that has no official religion, it's as though we need some kind of secular but deeply ethical compass to tell right from wrong. 
And Nixon was certainly not the first president to find this in Lincoln. The first Roosevelt went to his spirit, in a way, for counsel when he faced difficulties. There's a whole history of American statesmen asking, what would Lincoln do? It sounds almost like something out of a movie. Hello, Saunders. You know, I had a hunch I'd find you here when you weren't anyplace else. Hollywood goes to the Lincoln Memorial when we return to Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I am sitting on a step of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And as I look up toward the statue of Abraham Lincoln, I, I feel like I'm in a movie. And when I turn around now and look at the reflecting pool and the Washington Monument at the other end of the, of the mall, I really feel like I'm in a movie. Remember the first day you got here? Remember what you said about Mr. Lincoln? You said he was sitting up there waiting for someone to come along? You were right. He was waiting for a man who could see his job and sail into it. That's what he was waiting for. He knows you can do it. So do I. What? Do what, Saunders? You just make up your mind you're not going to quit, and I'll tell you what. I've been thinking about it all the way back here. It's a 40-foot dive into a tub of water, but I think you can do it. That's Gene Arthur and Jimmy Stewart in a scene from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's the quintessential Lincoln Memorial movie moment when the main character realizes he or she needs to do the right thing. That's probably why Oliver Stone used that scene in his film about Nixon and why Reese Witherspoon consulted with Lincoln's brooding marble self in Legally Blonde 2. So what's your story? Were you even honest? Yes, you were. And when Lisa Simpson tried to have her Lincoln Memorial moment on The Simpsons... Honest Abe, he'll show me the way. She discovered that she wasn't alone. Mr. Lincoln? Mr. Lincoln, I need your advice. What can I do to make this a better country? Is this a good time to buy a house? I can't get my boy to brush proper. But I look good with a mustache. So I tried to the turpentine, but that just make it worse. It also shows up in lots of science fiction films, usually as a symbol for an America from a bygone era, like in Logan's Run. That must be one of them. And they looked almost like us. never seen a face like that before. That must be the look of... of being old. Do I gather that you recognize me? I recognize what you appear to be. And appearances can be most deceiving. But not in this case, James Kirk. I am Abraham Lincoln. We recently unearthed this episode of Star Trek from 1969 the crew of the Enterprise encounters a living version of the Lincoln Memorial Lincoln floating in outer space, and the guy in the chair claims to actually be Abraham Lincoln. The crew knows he can't possibly be real, but he fits the idea that Captain Kirk has in his mind of who Lincoln was, down to the last detail. His beard, his top hat. His kindness, his gentle wisdom, his humor. Everything about him is so right. It's a 
faux intimacy familiar to most Americans. We may think we know who Abe Lincoln was, but all we really know is what we've gleaned from old photographs, a vision of his log cabin childhood, maybe a scene of Raymond Massey or Henry Fonda playing him, or from Star Trek. I was reputed to be a gentleman when I was commander-in-chief. During the four bloodiest years of my country's history, I gave orders that sent 100,000 men to their death at the hands of their brothers. There is no honorable way to kill, no gentle way to destroy. There is nothing good in war except its ending. George Ryan, the convicted and disgraced former governor of Illinois, quoted those words of Lincoln in a speech he made against capital punishment. Unfortunately, Lincoln never said them. The guy who wrote the Star Trek episode did. When Warren Beatty was considering a run for the presidency, he misquoted Lincoln. What Beatty attributed to Lincoln was actually said by a spirit medium who was channeling Lincoln during a seance in Iowa. You know, like any iconic figures there, anyone can hang a sign on them. You know, the way people sort of use, you know, uh, Jesus these days to back them up. Susan Laurie Parks has written two plays dealing with Lincoln, one of which won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, That's the difficulty with an icon, that you can use, you can misuse them, I think. And arguably, the Lincoln Memorial has played a big role in that by presenting Lincoln as a sort of American god enthroned in his heavenly temple on earth. He becomes this sort of universal good guy, and all these specifics just kind of get, like, etched away in, in the marble. It is huge. I mean, which, which oh, se- yeah. seems so un-American. It seems like something that, you know, Lenin or Stalin or one of the pharaohs would have rather than an American president. Yeah, I think that's, all, that's also a function of the assassination. I mean, I say, you know, Henry Bacon designed the, the, the building and all of these various governmental figures uh, commissioned it. But just as responsible for building it, I find, is John Wilkes Booth because, you know, Booth uh, shot Lincoln on Good Friday Lincoln died Saturday morning. And then Sunday morning, of course, every sermon across the land was comparing uh, the martyred Lincoln to the martyred Christ. And so Lincoln, you know, who was an incredibly controversial president, and like half the country pretty much hated his guts. And, and the war was still... Was just its, just barely yeah. over. And the wounds were still raw. And he was just, you know, barely... Um, barely tolerated by some people and, and actively loathed by so many people. But then because he's just shot down, um, his reputation just is immediately changed and he's deified. There's Lincoln and then there's a historical Lincoln. You know, the Lincoln in my mind mm-hmm. is, is the Lincoln that's interesting to me. Susan Laurie Parks's play, Top Dog, Underdog, is about a guy who impersonates Lincoln for a living. I've been drawn to myths since I was a very small child, you know, Greek myths and figures like Paul Bunyan and John Henry, you know, in the American folklore, things like that. And um, Lincoln is one of those mythic characters who is so much larger than the sum of his deeds. You you, li- you live in Los Angeles, and, and uh, yes. I remember one of 
as as a child before I'd ever gone there, I, yeah. I badly wanted to go to Disneyland to see the uh, animatronic Abraham Lincoln. There's an animatronic Abraham Lincoln in Disneyland? Uh, actually, I think they moved it to Disney World. Really? Yeah. And what does he do? He goes. He, he, goes, he talks. You know. Four score and seven. Yeah, exactly. And he shall, had, shall you know, not perish. He had perish. a high pitched voice. They say. His voice was high-pitched, kind of a reedy tenor voice. Tom Schwartz, the state historian of Illinois. Now, a reedy tenor voice is not how we think of Lincoln. We, we imagine him deep-voiced, stentorian, solemn, the way he looks in the memorial. And we don't think of him as jocular or depressive either, both of which he was. Schwartz says that Lincoln knew how to work his protean image, that he used it with great political savvy when he was in office. He very much understood the importance of images and certainly knew the, the power of words and the images that words conjured. Um, and, and so, you know, you almost get a sense that um, maybe this aw shucks <laughs> kind of guy was a facade, kind of a conscious mask that, that he wore to give people this impression that I'm, I'm not a threat. You can, you can trust me, you know. He's such a good politician, and and I mean I mean that in the best way possible. Like he he accomplishes this you know this thing, uh, and he gets kind of dragged kicking and screaming into abolishing slavery. But he has this process of change. You know, he kind of grows as the war goes on, and eventually, you know, halfway through the war, he decides what the war is about, and and it's go- now it's going to be about abolishing slavery, and and damn it, I'm going to be the guy that has to do it. He did that. He accomplished it. He got it done. This thing that it has just been this like open wound of a like an embarrassing sore on the American conscience since its conception of the country. You know, slavery. He ends it. That war was a turning point in our history, and this man, so intensely human, gets into our emotions. And in Team of Rivals, her book about Lincoln's presidency, Doris Kearns Goodwin writes that his own sense of his humanity is part of what motivated him. In his early life, so many people around him had really clear understandings of the afterlife that he did not share, which was unusual at the time. He was once asked after his girlfriend, Ann Rutledge, whom he loved, died, well, don't you believe that you might see her again? And he said, I wish I did, but I'm afraid I don't. So I think because of that, he began to adopt what seemed like an old Greek notion that at least if you accomplish something worthy, then your memory lives on, and you really are not just dust in the grave. And that was the ambition that powered him through so much. So maybe Lincoln didn't believe in a heaven with angels and clouds, but he really does seem to have achieved immortality. He allows himself to almost be a mirror of people's hopes and aspirations, what they'd like to project themselves to be and the country to be. You know, when Lincoln talked about the better angels of our nature, that that's what we should aspire to, I think people want to believe that. They want to believe that we can become those better angels. However, I think they're painfully aware of the fact that we're not. And the distance that needs to be overcome to become that And so, in many ways, Lincoln becomes that bridge that will allow people to have hope, you know, that 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 could be attained. 
fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln was a writer, you know, and a damn good writer. He's such a good politician. But he was decent, he was kind, he had empathy. This is not a god, a demagogue. He was a very great man. A man we owe so much to. A man we love. This is Kurt Anderson, back in New York City, and I'm actually right in the middle of what we used to call Ground Zero. When we first aired this program back in 2006, there was a plan for a memorial to be built here, but construction had barely begun. And people were frustrated by the pace of getting the memorial for 9-11 started. The huge budget was growing huger. The security issues were complicated. Editorials complained. Politicians whined. But it may just take us a lot of time and arguing before we understand any national trauma enough to know how best to memorialize it. Now, amazingly, almost a generation after the attacks, there is the shiny new One World Trade Center right there, the tallest building in the hemisphere. There's an underground museum over there that tourists line up for. And as a New Yorker, I'm definitely in the minority here. People who live here rush past, eager to get wherever they're headed, because life goes on. And over there, you can probably hear the water, is the magnificent, haunting September 11th memorial designed by Michael Arad. These deep, dark granite pools on the footprints of the destroyed towers. Great, dark voids, almost empty and filled with meaning. <laughs> 
There's no easy way to get a great memorial built. If you'd been a child old enough to hear the news of Lincoln being shot at Ford's Theater in 1865, you were a senior citizen before the Lincoln Memorial opened. And a century and a half after he died, we visit his memorial, still moved by the stark white temple with its weirdly gigantic statue of Abe Lincoln sitting inside. Being there gives us the chance to be with the man who faced down the worst trouble this country has ever seen and to try to connect with the better angels of our natures. I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening to this hour of Studio 360's American Icon series. This hour was produced by Jonathan Mitchell and Eric Malinsky. David Krasnow was the editor. And big thanks to David Strathairn for doing the voice of Abraham Lincoln in our show today. Since we first aired this episode, Dorothy Haidt, Leonda Fink, and James Horton have died. Tom Schwartz is now the director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. I know that my work in this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. Hitting the right political note in an acceptance speech. That is a perfect Oscar speech. Oscar speeches, Oscar nominees, Oscar categories, Oscar everything. Next time on Studio 360.